It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Alan Reed is the president and CEO of the Canadian Academy of Recording Artists and Sciences, or CARIS, as well as the Juno Awards and Music Counts. The 49th Annual Juno Awards and Juno Week 2020 will be hosted in Saskatoon from March 9th through to March 15th of 2020 and culminating in the Juno Awards on Sunday, March 15th at the Saskatel Centre, broadcast live on CBC, CBC Radio 1 and CBC Music and free on CBC Gym streaming services. Ellen joins me on the phone. It's a great pleasure to have him join us and talk a little bit more about the Junos and Karis and uh, the upcoming events. Ellen, welcome to the program. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. So, uh, we're leading up into the, the Juno Awards, as I just mentioned. Uh, they're going to be hosted in Saskatoon in uh, 2020. But uh, the, the 50th anniversary is a big deal, too. I want to get to that in a little bit. What, uh, what's different or what's the same about the upcoming uh, 49th Junos? Well, you know what? Every year, we've been traveling the Juno since 2002, going to different cities across Canada. And, you know, every single city brings their city to what the Junos are. And we're very excited to be going back to Saskatoon. We haven't been there since 2007. And uh, to return to that community, we're, we're super excited. They've been very, very engaged, the host committee, and very excited about having us. And we just came off a fantastic Junos this year in London as well. So, yeah, things are... Things are uh, Ramping up already for 2020. And I understand there's some new inductees coming forward. Yes. Yeah, so um, what we do at Karis, um, we also, uh, as many people know, the, the TV show, the Juno Awards, uh, but we also oversee the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And this year, uh, we inducted Corey Hart into the Hall of Fame on the Juno's broadcast. Um, but this has been something that's been going on for the last few years, that we have a significant amount of artists that we want to recognize. And in only doing one artist a year in the broadcast, we're very concerned that we're just not going to get to everybody, mm. especially some of the pioneers of our industry, people who were there in the very beginning and helped build the Canadian uh, industry. So um, we've been working on it for the last couple of years in partnership with the National Music Center at Studio Bell in Calgary. They're our partner and actually have the physical home of the Hall of Fame there. And so we've created a brand new event called the Canadian Music Hall of Fame Ceremony, which will be happening October 27th at Studio Bell in Calgary. And it will see us inducting an additional four artists this year. And uh, those inductees are Barbara Catola, who uh, was a sort of teen idol icon back in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, Andy Kim, uh, a renowned singer-songwriter known for creating the Archie's hit Sugar Sugar, but also major hits like Rock Me Gently. Uh, 70s rock band, 70s, 80s rock band Chilliwack from the West Coast, Bill Henderson and his team. Um, you know, great songs like Gone, Gone, Gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, from Toronto and Ontario, the Cowboy Junkies. Mm. So uh, those four will be honored at a special ceremony uh, later on this fall. Now, uh, pardon me for my ignorance on this. Is, is Bobby Cartola still with us? Is he still around? No, he's not. And actually, you know, it's an interesting thing. He was uh, sort of the impetus to a lot of this even happening. Um, there were a number of uh, industry veterans from our business that uh, when I moved into the role of president at Keras, uh, came forward and said to me, you know, there's a lot of these uh, artists who are now in their 70s uh, and who, who have yet to be inducted, who made a major impact on our business. And Bobby Cotola was one of those examples. And uh, he was still alive at the time. And unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago. And so, unfortunately, you know, it'll be a posthumous induction for, for Bobby, but his two sons, uh, Chris and Michael, are going to be there, along with a number of their family members, to uh, see their late father finally inducted into the Hall of Fame, which would, again, be a lovely honor for them. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Andy Kim, uh, he's still around? Absolutely. Andy is, uh, you know, he is a man about town. We see Andy <laughs> all the time at different music industry events, uh, just a, a wonderful human being and just, uh, just such a generous heart. So, yeah, we're thrilled to have him there. And the great thing is all these artists are going to be performing as well uh, at the Hall of Fame event. So we'll get a chance to see them all perform a, a classic song as well. Oh, that's great. And, you know, somebody else that comes to mind when I think of, of some of the early artists uh, who, who is, is by no means uh, 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 any less um, uh, known, perhaps, uh, is Paul Anka. I think of him. 
Oh yeah, Paul was in the was there at the very beginning um, and was inducted into the Hall of Fame very very early on for us as well. Um, you know, Paul was inducted back in 1980. I think he was the fourth person to be inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And well deserved. Uh, but yeah. yes. Yeah, certainly, you know, there's so many great icons. You just think about, you know, the artists, whether it's Oscar Peterson or Joni mm-hmm. Mitchell or or Neil Young and, you know, the band, the Guess Who, Gordon Lightfoot, the, the, the list goes on and on. Leonard Cohen, Rush, Buffy St. Marie. Um, it, we, there's so many incredible artists in this country. Um, it's, it's one of the most challenging things that I've had to manage in coming to the organization was how do we find a way to honor more of these great Canadians? Um, mm. So we're very excited about creating this new ceremony, and, and it's through the support of Music Canada, which is the trade organization that represents the major labels uh, who came forward as the presenting sponsors. So thrilled to have them on board and, and thrilled to be honoring more great Canadians every year. Yeah, you know, uh, Ellen, when you, when, you, when you talk about that and you th- look to the past and all these great artists that have, have come forward uh, and are being recognized now, um, I, I also think about the future and, and about, um, and one of those things that I think about is, is the other elements that, uh, that Karis is in, in, involved with in, in helping new artists come forward. Yeah, it's a, thanks for asking about that, David. It's something that, you know, as I said, everybody knows the TV show. They know the June Awards, but they may not know under the Keras umbrella, there's a number of different pillars of our organization. Um, we, we say we have four main pillars. We educate through Music Counts. Music Counts is our charity that helps put instruments in the hands of kids who need them most. Uh, Music Counts has now awarded over $12 million in instruments to schools and communities all across Canada from coast to coast to coast. Um, and actually, if there's any school teachers listening right now, uh, the Band-Aid program that supplies instruments to school music programs is currently open for submissions. So if you're a, a music teacher out there and are looking to uh, add some great instruments to your, your classroom, uh, you can apply for up to $15,000 for the musical infant equipment uh, at musiccounts.ca. little plug there for, uh, for our, our charity. Great. It does, so it does some great work. It, it does. Um, and we I'm, also... Yep. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I just wanted to say it is great, and I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to share that and, and uh, bring that forward as well. Yeah, then we also, the other pillars are we develop. Uh, we do that through our arts development program, which is called the Allen Slate Juno Masterclass. And uh, that was really sort of started to help get artists to the Juno stage. Um, again, when I came to the organization, I said, you know, we don't want to meet artists for the very first time when they're a nominee. How can we actually engage with artists at an earlier stage in their career? And we obviously do through music counts. But there was sort of that gap from, you know, giving uh, kids instruments in school to them becoming professional uh, uh, artists. And so we wanted to find a way to sort of help educate artists about the industry. So the Allen Slate Junior Masterclass is an artist development program where artists win the opportunity to come to Toronto uh, for a very intensive week mentorship uh, training opportunity. Uh, we partner with Canada's Music Incubator to do that, along with a number of uh, industry you know, organizations, whether it's from the major labels, independent labels, promoters, agents, uh, you know, a lot of the social media platforms, just sort of how today's music industry works in connecting those people. Um, so an important part of sort of moving artists forward in their career and helping them get to the Juno Awards, which is where our th- third pillar comes in, which is to honor artists, or so I should say to celebrate artists. Um, and then our final one is the Hall of Fame, and again, that's where we honor, honor the artists. So we like to say we're with them from, from birth to myth. We mm. give them their instrument when they first get started, and we hopefully see them through their journey all the way to the Hall of Fame. I, I guess uh, the industry, of course, has, has changed um, uh, I know you. You were you're you're a, a BC born fellow uh, from Kelowna, and um, and and you started on the west coast. But but the industry you mentioned has changed, and you mentioned social media, and uh, of course we hear more and more uh, artists just you know they're putting out singles rather than albums and those kind of things. Um, how does that influence what what you guys are doing? Well, I think you know it's very important that Karis uh, continues to evolve and and. You know, I think it's a very important point you brought up. You know, streaming of music has dramatically changed how um, people are getting their music and how artists are now releasing their music. And so every year we have to go back and look at our criteria of how do, how do we award 
um, Junos to all the different genres and, and different categories that we have. So every year, we, um, our Academy Operations team, who's in charge of looking at all our voting and nominating regulations, uh, go through those. Um, we're constantly asked questions from, you know, from within the industry, from artists all the time about each category and are you going to change this? Is there going to be a, a sort of a consumption component to it? So those things are, are reviewed on an annual basis. And uh, it's very important that Keras continues to evolve and, and sort of looks at the state of the industry and, and, and new things that are coming up through it and make sure that we adapt. Yeah, I, 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 that must be, a, as you say, a never-ending job, especially the way technologies uh, are moving forward <laughs> and social media just, uh, wow. Yeah, we call it our job jar, and literally <laughs> the team at Cabby Operations sort of just make notes, puts it into the job jar, and as soon as the Junos are finished each year, then that's when we sort of start up and look at making all those changes. Um, because submissions just open for the Junos as well on September 30th. Mm. So artists looking to submit can now go to the Juno Awards website um, and junoawards.ca, and you can find all the information on how to submit uh, for any of our 42 categories. But what will happen is after the Junos this year is we go right back into that process, then at looking at all those categories, saying what, what changes do we need to make and what questions are people bringing forward. Mm. So you just mentioned uh, this year, and of course uh, there is, uh, there's another change being made that's kind of near and dear to us here at Element FM, and that is uh, the Indigenous Artists. And I think yep. the, you, you had mentioned there's a change uh, with the Indigenous Artists Award. Yeah, we, uh, again, part of that, um, you know, evolving is it's very important for us to listen to the community. And, um, you know, the, the team at Keras cannot be experts in every single field and every genre of music. So we rely on what we call our music advisory committees. So for all of our categories, there is a committee of anywhere from sort of seven to ten people um, who come directly from that community, whether that's indigenous, classical, jazz, francophone, children's, rock, pop, you name it, there's a group of people who help sort of uh, bring forward um, concerns, comments, questions from that community. So one that came up is within the Indigenous category, it was always a recording category. Um, and uh, one things that the committee brought forward in the last year was there was confusion within the community about how is that defined. And so they felt if we really want to be supporting Indigenous culture and Indigenous artists, the award should actually be given to Indigenous people and not just Indigenous recordings. And, and so we consulted with the community and through the uh, advisory committee themselves. They went out, um, had a number of discussions, came back to us and, and basically said, we feel this would be the best change. If Karis really wants to help Indigenous artists, to sort of thrive and move forward in their career, this recognition for Indigenous artists or groups would be essential to doing that. So that change was made this year. And uh, again, just want to thank the, the committee for obviously bringing their uh, their change forward because we, we rely on them to let us know the feeling of the community and, again, how Keras needs to evolve to best support that and, and support artists. And, and that's what we're here for is to, to basically help uh, elevate and promote artists in their journey to um, getting their music heard. Uh, so can you help me understand that a little bit further? Artists or groups, is this broken down into two then, or how is it, how is it being looked no, at? It's one category. The category, the way it was structured before, was a recording category, meaning uh, a non-Indigenous person could have submitted that if their, their uh, subject matter uh, talked about Indigenous culture and Indigenous way of life. Um, so an example of that was Gore Downey could have submitted the Secret Path album technically in the Indigenous category. He chose not to, um, but he could have. So um, there, there was some confusion uh, within the category of, you know, well, what is Indigenous music? And is that Snotty Nose Res Kids in hip-hop? Is that someone, you know, like Jeremy Dutcher doing, a, you know, a, a very traditional-sounding record, but, you know, uh, using a, an ancient language? So uh, there was confusion of that, and there was confusion even within the community. We often are, are asked questions, um, if I submit to the Indigenous category, that means I, I can't be in other categories, mm. and that's absolutely not the case. Um, oftentimes artists are confused that they think if they submitted the category um, there, they're not eligible. So Snotty Nose Redka is a great example. They can submit into the rap category, and they can also submit into the Indigenous category. Same with Jeremy Dutcher. You can submit into any of the other um, categories we have, assuming your music fits that genre, as well as an additional category being Indigenous. 
Ah, that's great. So I'm, I'm hoping that that uh, clears some of that up for some of the other artists that might be listening out there. I appreciate you you elaborating on that. Now, in, yeah, on the absolutely. same same topic of Indigenous artists, and you mentioned about uh, Karis doing more to promote or, or help with promotion of Indigenous artists. Is there anything that Karis can do in, in helping to promote Indigenous artists in the mainstream. I mean, we hear, of course, uh, here at Element FM, as I mentioned to you, an Indigenous station, we play 25% Indigenous music, which uh, I'd like to actually see us play more if we could. Um, But we're kind of doing our part to help uh, get the artists out there and get played. Um, Is there anything that comes to mind for you that that maybe Karis can do to help uh, get more of the Indigenous artists played in the mainstream? Well, I think, you know, it's just, it's giving platforms, and, and I'm really proud of what Karis has been doing. If you look at the broadcast for the last few years, um, there's been Indigenous artists on the last three shows. Um, mm. uh, particularly in Ottawa around Canada 150, um, we had Buffy St. Marie open up the show, uh, moving into Tribe Called Red's performance that featured Black Bear and Tanny Tagak. Um, we had the Jerry Cans uh, in Vancouver. <laughs> And then this year, again, we had Jeremy Dutcher on the main broadcast. Mm. Um, so there's been a, a substantial um, sort of uh, spotlight on Indigenous music for the last three years on, on the broadcast. I know the Indigenous community continues to ask us to keep doing, to keep doing that. And it, we also need to be reflective. Like, these are exciting times for some Indigenous artists that are really, you know, I think about what Tribe Called Red has created and, and Tanya's success as well, mm-hmm. not just as a, as a musician, but as an activist and as an author. Um, and, you know, Jeremy stood on stage at Polaris Prize and talked about when he won that, there's an Indigenous renaissance happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very exciting time for a lot of Indigenous artists to be sort of have a spotlight shone on their work and their artistry and being seen and heard by more people. Um, so that's just, uh, I think it's a, a really positive trend that's been happening for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit for a more looking forward down to the 50th Juno Awards. They're coming back to Toronto. Yes, we just made that announcement last week and very excited. The Junos have, have uh, not been here since uh, 2011. Um, we were uh, here for the 40th anniversary a long time back. And, uh, yeah, just with the 50th anniversary coming up, um, we felt that, you know, this is one of the epicenters of the Canadian music industry, and there would be no better place than to be back here in Toronto for the 50th. And uh, through our, our, par- our partnership with MLSE, um, you know, they were able to uh, clear the schedules for the lease and the Raptors and get us in into the building. We need to be there, so we were very appreciative of that. Um, you know, bringing the Junos back to Toronto. This is just, you know, you think about the artists that have come out of this, this city in the last little while. It's just, you know, it's so exciting, whether it's, you know, in the, in the sort of the area from, you know, Brampton with Alessia Carr, Pickering, Shawn Mendes, Scarborough, uh, obviously the weekend. It's a really, really exciting time for Canadian artists. Yeah, it sure is. And I, I just think 50 years, wow, that's, that's pretty significant. It's going to be a pretty, I imagine <laughs> Sorry, it's going to be a pretty big, uh, uh, certainly gives uh, you guys a lot of material to look back over. Um, and, you know, that how technology has changed, how the industry has changed. Uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah, no question. I think it's, you know, uh, we will try to strike that balance between looking back and looking forward and obviously honoring the current uh, artist that year. But it's, you know, you think about what this industry and how this industry has grown and the artists that it's produced uh, is exceptional. Again, I've a long time music industry person myself, 30 years in the business. I was the former head of A&R for Universal Music um, and then uh, joined Karis and the Junos. And I am uh, extremely proud to, to head up an organization that helps celebrate our great talent. Um, you know, for someone who has been so closely connected to the artist community here, um, it, it is, gives me great pride to sort of, again, have this platform that is recognized and, and through our partnership with CBC, they may have to help us push this out to a global audience as well. Which is exciting. Um, there's, you know, it's. I, I don't think since the '90s, since you know, Celine and Sarah and Alanis and Shania sort of dominated the the charts, uh, have we seen this kind of global domination happen by Canadian artists? Mm. And not just the Biebers and the Drakes and the Weekends. Like it's literally, you know, artists like Grimes who have gone around the world and can play all over the place. Um, you know, again, I think about just within our indigenous culture, you think about what Buffy St. Marie is doing now. She's bigger now than she's ever been. 
Um, it's it's absolutely incredible. So it's a really exciting time to be Canadian artist, and and you know again I feel honored to be in a position to to, to help celebrate those people in our industry and uh, the great accomplishments that have been made. It's interesting you say that because it it's sort of falls on the heels of of just the release of uh, Robbie Robertson's uh, uh, latest film project, of course. Once we're brothers, of course, yes, uh, and of course his 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 book uh, uh, Testimony, which is just filled with incredible stories, and um, you know, so so moving forward into the fiftieth year, as you know, uh, we uh, we are located in Toronto and Ottawa, our stations at Element FM. Um, and we would be more than happy to help uh, in the area of promoting any Indigenous artists. Uh, if uh, if you, you so choose to, to have us involved, we'd be more than pleased to do that, because that's part of well, our mandate we, here. We would love to have that. Obviously, David, you know what? We rely on all of our partners in, in media, whether it's radio, television, online, to help support the artists. That's what it's all about, and, and giving artists a platform on your radio station to be heard and be discovered for their music. Is that's what the Junos are all about. So I will definitely take you up on your offer. And, <laughs> I appreciate uh, you that. And be sure that we'll be in contact to see how we can work with Element FM to, uh, again, help bring more awareness to the great artists that are going to be nominated for the Junos in the 50th and just, again, talk about the great history of Canadian music that has come from this country. Fabulous. We're going to wrap things up in a minute, Alan, but I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind, if you could briefly share the story with us about your discovery of, of Jan Arden. Oh, <laughs> sure. Um, well, uh, going a long way back, I was uh, I was quite young. I was 24 years old, and I was made the head of A&R for A&M Records. And um, I was looking for my very first signing. And being a, a 24-year-old young man, and, 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 you know, I was out there looking for my first rock band is what I wanted to sign. I wanted to go find the Tragically Hip or somebody like that. And I was given a cassette of Jan Arden's by uh, a mutual friend in the music industry and said, you should check this woman out. And her manager used to work for A&M Records, my old company. And so I put it on, and I thought she had a beautiful voice, but I just thought the songs were kind of depressing and uh, not really what I was looking for at the time. But I, out of, out of uh, sort of courtesy to uh, uh, my friend and, and the, old, the old manager, I thought, I need to listen to all these songs. So I drove back and forth the office every day with Jan's cassette in my cassette deck and listened to all 14 of the songs that were on that demo. And by the end of it, I was kind of like, beautiful voice, but just not what I'm looking for. I'm going to pass. And uh, was going to call her manager the next morning, and I went home that night from work and uh, had a fight with my girlfriend. And woke up the next morning still kind of arguing, and I got in the car and started my car and was driving up Warden Avenue up into Scarborough where the office was. And the song on Jan's first record, which is called I Just Don't Love You Anymore, the demo of that came on. And it ripped my heart out. It was just, it, it hit me at the right moment, right time. And I got to the office and went in and called my girlfriend, apologized about the fight, and then kind of went, wow, this song really affected me. And I put it on my office, and within 30 seconds, there were three people standing in my doorway all going, who's that? And I said, it's this young singer named Jan Arden from Calgary. And all of a sudden, the other 14 songs made sense. Um, you know, it's just it's one of those lessons in life that you need to be open to music. You need to be in the right emotional state to sometimes let music into your life. And uh, I called up Jan's manager and was like, I love it. I get it. And the funny thing was, I had no idea Jan was 29 years old. Um, she had been passed on by every record company, every publisher, two or three times over. She'd been trying to get a record deal forever. Um, and so I sort of knew another backstory. I flew to Calgary. I saw her perform. We had a chance to have dinner and meet, and I just sort of fell in love with her and just thought she was such a gifted songwriter. And I came back to Toronto and said to my boss, I found my first signing. And lo and behold, I didn't know he had passed on her years before. <laughs> and uh, so he was like, no, I don't think we're going to sign Jan Arden. And to make a long story a little bit longer, um, the head of A&M Los Angeles uh, came to Toronto for the uh, All-Star game, the baseball game, uh, back when the World, World Series were happening here with the uh, Blue Jays. And uh, I was called into Joe's office to play this demo of Jan Arden for the American president. And when I did, the hair stood up on his arms. He mm. just, he was blown away by her voice and 
and a little bit about her story. And uh, right there in the spot, uh, my boss cut a joint venture deal for Jan to be signed to both A&M Canada and A&M US. Hmm. And uh, obviously, uh, she's had a lot of success since then. So uh, great start to my career. And uh, as I said, Jan and I remain friends to this day. And we're sort of uh, always talk about I gave her start, but she also was absolutely instrumental in my start as, a, as an A&R guy as well. Uh, that's a great story. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And uh, it kind of backs up that, that old adage about uh, right place, right time kind of thing. Absolutely. You know, you just, uh, just got to be open to music and, and, as I said, let it into your life. And that's, why, that's what's so great about music. It's, you know, whatever mood you're in, you can find a song and, and an artist to, to make you feel what you want to feel. And uh, that moment of sort of uh, heartbreak that I was going through, Jan's voice and, and song spoke to me. And, uh, you know, and that's the same for everybody out there. Not the same artist necessarily, but let music into your life. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll help you cope and, and help you navigate uh, uh, your journey. Mr. Alan Reed, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today on Element FM. And uh, we wish you all the best in the future coming up to the 49th Juno Awards in, uh, in, in Saskatoon and also the big 50th uh, Juno Awards coming back to Toronto uh, in 2021, I guess it is. Absolutely. David, thanks for having me on. appreciate it. Thank you very much. That is Alan Reed. He is the president and CEO of the Canadian Academy of Recording Artists and Sciences, or CARIS, and the Juno Awards and Music Counts. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Rolf Matthews is a biological science professor at Simon Fraser University and has been researching climates and vegetation in the area for 30 years. His research combines approaches from biology, the earth sciences, archaeology, and focuses on reconstructing past environmental changes in Western Canada using a variety of techniques such as pollen analysis, plant microfossil analysis, and radiocarbon dating. He collaborates with others to seek and understand the environmental changes that have produced the present-day mosaic of forest and other vegetation types. The effects of climate change are also uh, of, of importance to him across the forests and wetlands. And uh, from those results, those investigations are of interdisciplinary importance and are widely used by geologists, archaeologists, climatologists, and resource managers, as well as biologists. Quite a mouthful there, Rolf, but welcome to the show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us because we have some, uh, in, you have a bit of an interesting little story to, to talk about. Yeah, uh, uh, good morning to you, David. Um, Vancouver is an interesting area because we're on the West Coast, of course, and uh, the West Coast is part of what's been called the, coast, uh, the Pacific Coastal Highway. Um, and this is part of the peopling of the Americas controversy that's been raging for over 100 years, trying to determine where did the first sort of Aboriginal people that colonized North and South America, where and when did they um, arrive and how did they get here? And uh, even though I'm not an archaeologist, uh, I've been a member, an associate member of the archaeology department at Simon Fraser, even though I've never had a single archaeology course in my life. But I've worked with archaeologists ever since I started there in 1975, because, as you can imagine, archaeologists are very much interested in what was the environment like 10,000 years ago, 12,000 years ago, 13,000 years ago, when maybe there's evidence of peoples. What plants did they have available for technology, for eating? Uh, what was the environment and climate like in terms of that has implications for what kind of animals were around? So the paleo-environmental aspects, which are my main focus, they, they marry very well with archaeological investigations. And sometimes um, when I'm working on a biological project, it, it connects really naturally with an archaeological project, and that happens to be the case for this site on Haida Gwaii, uh, called Kilgi Gwaii, uh, which archaeologists had discovered, had worked on, and came to me to, to try and do a de more detailed an analysis of what was the environment like at this time. And uh, we had some interesting discoveries that came out of this sort of very basic reconstruction of the past environment and the archaeology with all these other co-workers. And uh, this interdisciplinarity is, 
exciting for me because it keeps me interested in learning about archaeology and the archaeologists are always happy to learn more about the plants and the animals and the climate for any one of these sites. And the Kilgigway site uh, was important because it was just published in a paper online very recently and made some interesting uh, new discoveries. Yeah, and, and I think part of that had to do with a, a, a small pond that was once freshwater but had, uh, had been covered over by rising sea levels. And there was a discovery of some, some, uh, some charcoal? Yeah, well, this Kilgigway site was... It was discovered by a, a, a Haida archaeologist who uh, is now called, it used to be called Wanagan, is now called Captain Gold. And he discovered in the intertidal zone, lying literally in the, among the rocks on the beach on this small island called Ellen Island in southern Haida Gwaii, he collected over a thousand stone, or, uh, small stone basalt artifacts, which were clearly, some which were clearly chipped and, and modified. Um, and he discovered this archaeological site. But it just looked like an intertidal surface finds. But when the archaeologists came to look at the site in greater detail, which is only available when the tide is low because it's right at the intertidal level. So at low tide, you can actually walk to the site and, uh, and do probes and so forth. At high tide, it's, you can't get at it. But when the archaeologists started excavating there and poking around at the site, seeing what was buried underneath the, the sand and gravel at the top, they came across, by using probes pushing down into the sediment, they came across something that wasn't beach sediment at all, but looked like pond, peat, and lake sediments underneath. So, oh, what is this? Anyway, their probes re re reconstructed a small freshwater pond that had now been overrun by the rising sea level and buried in the beach rocks. But uh, when they took a, a core using pushing a pipe down to the very base of this little pond, they discovered a, a nice sequence of, of peat and wood and lake sediments, which they radiocarbon dated, and it went back to um, about almost fourteen, 000, almost fifteen thousand years at the very bottom, which was a fairly old age, up to about uh, ten thousand five hundred years ago, uh, when the top was cut off by the marine sediments. So this pond, which we analyzed for the usual things we do, pollen analysis, spore analysis looking at for seeds and, and plant bits in there to reconstruct what the environment was like, which we got a very good uh, record of environmental change, which went from a tundra to pine forest to a more typical uh, coastal rainforest of spruce and hemlock and, and alder and so forth. This was done by a graduate student of mine, Emily Helmer. Um, but when I looked at this core and her really nice and detailed environmental reconstruction of the forest types, I discovered that there was a lot of charcoal in the core. Now, that wasn't necessarily a surprise because this small pond, there was charcoal found in all around in the archaeological sites at the edges of the pond. And there was even a hearth feature, which was a, like a big fire pit mm. where uh, a lot of burning had taken place and there was mm. a lot of charcoal scattered around it. So having charcoal at the site is typical of any kind of a, a good archaeological site where we know people were processing uh, plant foods, uh, cooking fish and meat and so forth. Um, but finding the, the quantities of charcoal we found in this little pond um, created a, a need to do a more detailed analysis just of the charcoal. And when you look at the, this, this sediment core of this freshwater pond, at the top during the time of the known archaeological occupation, which dates between about 10,500 years ago and 10,800 years ago, only about a 300-year period, sort of at the end of the, the last ice age, as sea level was, was coming up. So it was clearly a hunting and fishing camp because there were uh, lots of animal, bird bones, uh, plant seeds, and so forth. It was a very rich site in terms of archaeological information. Then we looked at the core, I, I, I saw, well, it looks quite dark during the known occupation horizon, which is probably due to the charcoal. And sure enough, when we looked at the charcoal record, it was just chock-a-block full of all charcoal of all sizes. But when we carried on lower down in the core into the older sediments below the known occupation horizon, we discovered a whole series of peaks of charcoal that... Uh, when analyzed by my colleague, who was a former student at the University of Victoria, Terry LaCourse, 
and her assistants, we discovered that there are statistically significant peaks, at least half a dozen or more, below the known occupation horizon with really large peaks of charcoal in them. And this was unexpected because we're in an area where natural forest fires would be very rare. Right now, there's almost no lightning strikes and no natural forest fires on this Haida Gwaii uh, coastal region, which is very wet, so-called hypermaritime, very wet, cool, very few uh, lightning storms. So the most fires are human-caused. So what's causing these peaks of charcoal below the known occupation horizon? And after looking at all the evidence, we concluded that these had to be evidence of people using the site creating the human-caused fires around the edges of this little pond going back to about 13,000 years ago, which is over 2,000 years more older than what the actual archaeological site showed. So that was worth publishing and worth noting that the charcoal could actually be a proxy for human presence. And this is not the first time that's been done. Um, there are other sites where this has also been, been noted, but uh, this really pushed pushes the human presence, the known human presence on Haida Gwaii uh, well back uh, before, uh, much older than it was previously known. Now, with that, it, it, I understand it raised other questions then about, for instance, uh, when and how the, the inhabitants may have actually arrived in, in uh, Haida Gwaii. Um, very true. In fact, you know, this long controversy I alluded to right at the very beginning, this how did the people get into the, the Americas, presumably from Beringia, the, the northern regions, because all the indications are that the, peop, the first native peoples were immigrants that came from uh, Eastern Asia, very likely from the areas around northern Japan, Hokkaido, or eastern Siberia, crossed the Bering Land Bridge when sea levels were much lower during the Ice Age, and then sort of settled in the Alaska-Yukon region to the north, while most of North America from coast to coast was covered by a huge ice sheet, so they couldn't get south. And the prevailing view was that the first people that came south came during the early stages of melting of these large ice sheets when the, the ice sheet over the Cordillera, sort of from the Rocky Mountains to the west coast, when that Cordillera and ice sheet melted back enough from the Laurentide Ice Sheet over Hudson's Bay that it opened this so-called ice-free corridor down the east side of the Rockies, you know, going past where now we have Edmonton, Calgary, that they came down into the Great Plains by that route about no earlier than 13,000 years ago because the geological evidence showed that this, these two ice sheets did not separate enough to allow anybody to, or any plants or animals or humans to pass uh, and, you know, before, about 13,000 years ago. And that these earliest hunters were big game hunters of the so-called Clovis people, Clovis culture. Um, and it's always been assumed that they were the first immigrants into North America, big game hunters of the Clovis culture. Well, the evidence in the last 20 or 30 years or more has really reversed that picture, that the evidence is that the coastal region uh, had much earlier deglaciation than the interior ice-free corridor. And uh, this was started by a colleague of mine at Simon Fraser, Knut Fladmark, way back in his thesis in the uh, late 1970s. He had this idea that maybe a coastal route coming down, probably by boat, hop, skipping and jumping from ice-free areas that deglaciated much earlier uh, was the way that the first people got into the Americas. And the evidence for that has been piling up very recently. And in fact, just two months ago in August, there was a major paper published in the journal Science, which is kind of the premier scientific journal in North America, which identified a site in Idaho, which has been dated at 16,000 years ago, on sort of the headwaters of the, the Columbia River, on the Salmon River. And this site, at the age of 16,000, people at that time period could not have come via the ice recorder because it was way definitely closed then. They had to have either been there before, which is a long another long controversy that we can talk about later, <laughs> or they came down the coast and moved 
if you come down the coast that is largely becoming ice-free by boat, um, the first major river before the Fraser River became deglaciated, the first major river that you come across doing a left turn would be going up the mouth of the Columbia River in Oregon. And then if you, uh, in Idaho, uh, sorry, Washington State, you would have had to come up the uh, the Columbia uh, system and we could have ended up in Idaho by following the river up to the site called, uh, I think it is called Cooper's Ferry, and it's been securely dated at 16,000 years ago. And there's evidence before that that the coast was available much earlier. There's a famous site in Washington called the Manus Mastodon site, which looks like there was a huge elephant type kill of a mastodon dated, uh, this is again in, in Washington near Squim on the Olympic Peninsula, and it was dated at 13,800 years ago. But people kind of ignored it. The archaeologists didn't believe that people were there on the coast that early uh, because these were not uh, Clovis-type hunters at all. And there are other sites uh, down in Oregon, places called Paisley Caves that have been dated at 14,000. So people have been discovered on the coast all the way from... Um, almost Alaska down to Oregon, California at an earlier site. And this Kilgigwai site is the oldest archaeological site on Haida Gwaii, the, the Queen Charlotte Islands, where I've been working for over 30 years. It's kind of my favorite field working area, working on climate, vegetation, history. When I looked at the Kilgigwai site and evidence that people were there 13,000 years ago, that matched up a bunch of other recent discoveries that were, you know, sort of front page news. The discovery of human footprints at 13,200 years ago on Calvert Island, which is just north of Vancouver Island. Uh, the discovery of an ancient village site at a place called Triket Island, just north of Calvert Island at about 14,000 years ago. Well, all of these were controversial originally because the, the Clovis, so-called Clovis police, did not want to believe that people were on the coast that early. Uh, they've had to sort of turn tail and accept the fact that the evidence for early human presence on the coast, including Haida Gwaii and other places now, is un incontrovertible, and it all precedes the ice-free corridor. So people were on the coast before they were in the interior, and that was a major turnaround from 100 years of thinking uh, prior to today. Mm. Uh, the voice you're listening to is Rolf Matthews. He is a biological science professor at Simon Fraser University. He's my guest on the show. I'm David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. So, Rolf, when when you look at this material and you talk about people that, for instance, just say they didn't want to believe that this that this was real, that these people were here, in fact, longer than that, what would be their reasoning for not want to, wanting to admit that or, 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 or look at the, the facts? Well, in fact, there's a recent paper written. Um, the 13,000 years ago is kind of a key time because that's the first time you could argue that the ice recorder was, uh, was potentially open enough, even though if you think about it, an area sandwiched between, like a, a highway sandwiched between two major ice sheets that melt in the summer, producing raging meltwater streams, very little uh, plant animal life on these unstable soils. At least that's potentially when people could have come down. So it all comes down to the interpretation of radiocarbon dates, and I don't want to get into the technicalities of it, but there are two things about radiocarbon dates. If you look at older literature, when say, somebody dated something at 11,000 years ago, for example, the early Clovis people, those were originally radiocarbon dates that were uncalibrated. They were not the same as true calendar ages. Mm. 11,000 years ago in radiocarbon years is actually 13,000 years ago in calibrated real years. Mm. And I don't want to get into the details of why there's a difference, but the production of radiocarbon in the atmosphere uh, varies over time for, for various reasons, and there you have to calibrate radiocarbon ages to be real. And all radiocarbon ages also, so you say 11,000 years, have a plus-minus error on them. And if a certain small, especially old dates, small samples have may have you know 11,000 years plus or minus two or 300 years either way, which means it could be 11,300 years ago, or it could be 10,700 years ago. So there's an error associated with all radiocarbon dates. 
And there are potential problems with radiocarbon ages like contamination from things like coal or uh, carbonate rocks that have carbon in them. So it becomes a very complex story. So you need a wealth of information, a wealth of data that all supports uh, a certain age. And this is what, for example, the Cooper's Ferry study has done in, in Idaho, which really documents that 16,000 years ago in calibrated years is, is a real age because they have not one or two, they have many radiocarbon dates, all telling you the same story, and it fits with um, all kinds of other evidence that this is a solid date. But if you're dealing with like the first date that comes from a place like Monteverde in in southern Chile, which is now which is dated at 12,500 radiocarbon years, it's almost five fifteen thousand real years old. And people were in South America fifteen thousand years ago, also on the coast. So it does look like the the coastal highway. You know, as the evidence mounts up, you need the kind of the weight of evidence uh, with all the sort of potential problems dealt with, analyzed, and excluded before you can, you know, say this is now a demonstrated fact in terms of an age greater than 13,000 years ago. When the first dates come out, there's always arguments by people that don't want to believe it for one reason or another. They'll argue with the dates are wrong or the samples were, were collected incorrectly or something is, is a problem. And until more dates and more evidence compiles to confirm something, there's always this element of doubt. And science rarely ever deals with 100% certainty. We always deal with best evidence to date. And it, it varies from various sites. How good is the evidence? How solid is it? Um, and those are kind of arguments allow people that have a certain mindset or historical mindset to sort of argue with new evidence that overturns their, their current worldview. Right. Now, with that, a couple of things that are in the information that I have that, that I'm wondering if it, if, how it affects things, such, such as uh, marine vehicles, the ability for these people to have traveled by some sort of, of, of water vehicle at that time. Yeah. Well, again, this is one of these problems, right? Um, we have no evidence of any kind of a fossil boat or skin boat. There are ways to travel in Arctic and, and periglacial environments at the edges of glaciers. The Inuit do it all the time. Uh, various people in northern regions have uh, skin boats made of, uh, say, walrus hides or other kinds of animal skins that make for very light, easily carried around uh, around obstacles and things, but strong boats that you can uh, navigate icy waters and icebergs and, and paddle your way down environments that are still sort of glacial in spots. So, uh, but the fact is there are no fossil skin boats that have been discovered yet, uh, although they might be discovered some way down the road. But again, that's another one of those things, since you don't have evidence of actual boats, um, the argument can be, well, you know, this is unconfirmed that people were here using boats. But when you have a site like Kilgigwai, which is on a small island, Ellen Island, um, on the coast that is made up of all kinds of little islands, you kind of have to assume that people had a way of getting around on the water, even if you don't have the actual archaeological evidence of boats, people had to have some way of, of navigating around these uh, environments. So, you know, by proxy, you, they weren't swimming, you can be sure of that. <laughs> so they had some kind of watercraft, what, they, what kind it was. We'll determine maybe, you know, someone down the road will discover evidence of, of a skin boat or uh, even a, a wooden uh, canoe remnant or something. But as right now, we don't have the evidence of how people actually traveled, but they had to have traveled to get onto small islands. Right. Now, what is the significance of, of finding, uh, it's pointed out, some of the bones were albatross. What, what, are the, what is that significant of? Well, that really threw me as well. There's a long list when you, when uh, Daryl Fedgie, who's uh, the, who was the Parks Canada archaeologist at the time, along with a number of other archaeologists from the University of Victoria that worked on the actual Kilgigwai archaeology, their list of, of marine fish, which include halibut, herring, salmon, greenling, all kinds of uh, fish, 
marine birds, all kinds of marine birds. When I saw the evidence, even some photographs of these long tubular wing bones that they did, that someone had identified as, as albatross, I said, I was really blown away because albatross are birds that are famous for basically living on the ocean. They only come on land for a period when they're laying their eggs and, and hatching their young. Once they're active and flying, they, they're always on the air floating on their large wings. So in order, um, and we don't know of any albatross colonies, you know, maybe these albatross were killed while they were hunted while they were nesting on land, but these are totally pelagic sort of open ocean birds, along with many of the others that they discovered that were probably presumably eaten there because the bones are part of the mm. uh, sort of the midden collections that uh, uh, the, the garbage collections mm. of, of people that were hunting this site. So that one really threw me because A, they're, they're not common birds and B, they're open ocean birds and, you know, they're nothing tied to the land. There are some land animals, there's some bear, you know, black bear bones and uh, that were also discovered on there and other, maybe a few land animals. But mostly we're dealing with marine mammals like seals, um, otters, uh, all kinds of, of things that had to be hunted on the ocean. And to do that, you really need boats to, to collect almost most of the things that, that they were, uh, you know, eating and consuming and throwing their remains into their the middens. And by the way, the shell midden, which is kind of the, the garbage dump around a, uh, a campsite like this, the shell midden is the oldest shell midden known on the coast. It's, you know, dated about 10,500 years ago. Uh, and it's the old old shell midden known anywhere on the on the coast. So there's something about people living on on this Haida Gwaii, Kilgigwe site were clearly highly marine adapted. They got around the water, they hunted, they fished on the water, also used land resources as well. But having people that were clearly maritime adapted also ties in very well, you know, that they were probably among the very early colonists in the BC because the old view that that Clovis mammoth hunters came in coming down through um, Edmonton, Calgary uh, um, 13,000 years ago and suddenly charging to the coast and becoming adept boat builders and marine seafood uh, gatherers seems highly unlikely. The people that were on Kilgigwai at this early age of 13,000 years ago, um, for which there's other evidence as well, um, they were clearly marine adapted. And that, again, is another major turnaround in thinking that uh, marine adaptations are as old as they are and probably were even preceded the, the terrestrial adaptations on the in, inland sites. Okay, uh, Rolf, fascinating story. I appreciate you sharing that with us today. And it's been wonderful having you on the show. We wish you all the best with your future endeavors and certainly we'll be following this to see what else might come out of this story. I'm sure there are other stories that are going to emerge in the next few years. People are looking carefully at these uh, these sites. So uh, I enjoyed that very much. Thank you. And once again, thanks for joining us. That's Ralph Matthews. He was a biological science professor at Simon Fraser University, and he has been researching climates and vegetation in the area of Haida Gwaii for 30 years. Thanks again, Ralph. Pleasure for you to join us, and uh, all the best in the future. Thank you, David. Have a good day. Bye-bye. All right. That's Element FM and Moment of Truth for today. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.